The scripture reading today is selected from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. Please turn to the bulletin to read responsibly. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light, and the justice of your cause like noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently for their place, they will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you may know a statement known as a Confederate soldier's prayer. It's not really a prayer, but it is about prayer. And it goes like this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of people. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all people most richly blessed. Blessed. Happy. And getting nothing you initially wanted. I think that that's what Jesus has in mind, at least in part, when he says, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek before the will of God, no matter what it is or where it lies. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let's pray. Loving God, we bow before you. We come here eager to place our lives before your gaze, to sort our lives out in your presence and to follow your will. And yet at times there are battles raging within us when it's another will that we want. So we need your strength. We need your word to guide us. We need your life within us. So come, as your word is read and as your word is proclaimed, as your word is sung and as we pray together, and use this time 
that we would be drawn closer to the path in life for which we were created, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In our sermons throughout the fall, we're looking at the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We find the Sermon on the Mount of the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and those are important chapters to memorize, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And this Sermon on the Mount, the heart and the core of Jesus' teaching, begins with a preface, and that preface we call the Beatitudes, statements about blessedness. Or more accurately, if we look at the original Greek word makarios, happiness. It's a common word. It's not a holy word. In fact, the New Testament was written in what's called common Greek, not special Greek, just the everyday Greek of everyday life. And in everyday life, makarios simply meant and means happiness. As if Jesus, our Savior and our King, wants to make it very clear from the beginning of all of his ministry, all of his teacher, that one of his ultimate goals is your happiness and my happiness. This is what he wants for us, not just holiness, not just godliness, not just spirituality, not just piety, but he is interested in our happiness as well, all of our human condition. And this is important because there's so many people who think that Jesus is so ethereal that he's not really interested in the normal everyday things of life. Even though there's no question, crowds flocked to Jesus because they found that he was interested in the normal everyday things in life and that he wanted to make them happier. And he would make them happier even if they didn't give their lives over to the will of God to begin with. He didn't demand that first. But he healed them and he fed them and he gave them words of wisdom in order to understand the complexities of life. And sure, he called them to repent. For the kingdom of heaven, he said, was at hand. But it wasn't a quid pro quo. It wasn't, you've got to do this before that. He was interested in them as human beings in all of their lives. So he speaks at the beginning of his major body of teaching about our human happiness. But having said that, that Jesus is interested in our happiness, there's no question that when we read the Beatitudes in which Jesus speaks about happiness, the kind of happiness he's speaking about or the source of happiness or the sources of happiness that he wants us to think about, well, we have to admit they're rather strange. They're rather different and at times. They're actually rather bizarre. So, for example, he begins by saying, happy are the poor in spirit. I don't know if you put those two things together in normal everyday life, happy, poor in spirit. I would say that most of us don't connect those two things together, but he says that that's Part of the source of our happiness to be poor in spirit, poor enough in spirit, I believe he means, to know that our lives are utterly dependent on God and we cannot do it by ourselves. Ah, the source of our happiness and the source of our entrance into the realm of God, the kingdom or the realm of God, to know that we need God's help. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Then last week, we thought about another strange beatitude, Happy are those who mourn, says Jesus, who grieve, says Jesus. Not exactly two things I would normally put together. In fact, it almost seems like a contradiction in terms. Happy, mourning, grieving. But as we looked at it, we saw that in the Scripture, there are different ways to grieve. And in fact, even from a psychological point of view, if you don't grieve when you've 
have a broken relationship or you've lost someone you've loved, if you don't grieve, you will never be happy. In fact, it's a, a way of becoming happy is to let the tears come out and our sadness and sometimes our anger to flow out before happiness can ever return to our lives. So there's grief over our normal human relationships. There should be grief, the Scripture says, because God grieves over the injustices in this world, and then we should grieve over our sin, which plagues us again and again and again, and which should lead us to turn to God. So grief is the beginning in many situations of happiness and of comfort. And so Jesus is right on target, even though to begin with, these things may seem to be rather strange. And some of the others are rather strange as well. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, okay? Those who are merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And then happy are those who are persecuted. I'm not going to deal with that this week, but we're going to come to that. That's a strange juxtaposition that we have there. One more strange one, and this is the one that I want us to think about today. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, really? The meek? They're the ones who are happy? I mean, do you really believe that in your hearts? Have you ever even thought that thought? Have you ever aspired when you're thinking about who you really want to be in life? I really want to be, when I grow up, I really want to be meek. Is that something that actually comes to your mind when you think about your aspirations for life or for your children. So our children are baptized here when they grow up. We really want them to be meek. Is that something which is anywhere in our consciousness there? I'm not really sure that we think that way at all. And sometimes when I do think that way, I say, ooh, I'm not really sure I like that at all. In fact, I have within my mind at least many negative connotations when it comes to meekness, and some of them come straight from the dictionary or from the thesaurus when I look for synonyms for the word meek in English, words I don't really care for that much. So here's a list. I think this is from Roger's thesaurus. Acquiescent and spineless, broken and crushed, browbeaten and bullied, cowed and dominated, hanged, dog, henpecked and intimidated. Happy are the meek. In that sense, mm, surely not. In fact, I'm quite sure that I really don't want to be meek in that kind of sense, nor do I think Jesus wanted to be meek or wants us to be meek in that sense either. In fact, in those senses or in many of those senses, that is not the Jesus of Scripture. Even though some people think of Jesus, as I said, as just this a little bit ethereal, not quite real. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, yes. But that's not all there is to Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. So, for example, we find Jesus when he is 12 years old. He's with his parents. He's in the city of Jerusalem. They've traveled down from their hometown of Nazareth, and it's Passover in the city of Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem normally, according to the late great German scholar Joachim Jeremias, was between 25 and 30,000 people, though at Passover, uh, four or five times as many people would be crammed in to the old city. So 100,000 people plus all there, and Jesus is there with the family, and he gets lost in the shuffle. And his parents begin their journey home, and they think Jesus is with a group of people who've traveled down from Nazareth. They're traveling back. They think he's there, and they realize a day or two later that he's not 
there, but he's still in Jerusalem. And so they're in panic. They go to look for their son and they try to find him. And they do find him. They find him in the temple. And some of you may remember this story. If you've got a lost child, finding your child in the temple's not really a bad thing. Where do I look for my lost children? We don't think of that either here in the church. Well, here they are in the church. Jesus is in the temple and he's speaking He's asking questions of the rabbis. That's not a bad thing, but when the parents come and they find Jesus, Jesus does not immediately go, oh, I'm so sorry that I wasn't with you. That is not what Jesus says at that time. He is not meek in that sense. He says, didn't you know where I'd be? That I would be in my father's house? A bit of a speaking back to his parents at that particular time. And yet, one of the reasons was Jesus was with them was because this was sort of bar mitzvah age. They were treating him as an adult. And when he began to be an adult, and we as parents know this experience, we don't always like it when our children become adults in a way that we are not quite ready for. Uh, but more than that, he uh, was, was at that, this particular stage was not meek to them because he would have remembered what the angels had said to the parents. Who is my real father, he says. Well, they would have known this from the angels at his birth, that God was his real father. They'd forgotten that. Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Not meek at that time. And then there are other times as well. So Jesus does grow up. He's no longer 12 years of age. He is with uh, his disciples, and they are at a wedding in a town called Cana, which is not too far from the hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus' mother Mary is there again. And this time the, the wine runs out. Maybe you remember this story in John chapter 2. The wine runs out, and Jesus' mother knows that Jesus can fix things. She may forget some things about who Jesus is, but she knows that Jesus can fix things, and she wants Jesus to fix this problem at the wedding when the wine runs out. The party is going to be over, and it's going to be a dismal failure for the young couple and for their family. But when she tries to tell Jesus what to do, Jesus speaks back to her and says, woman, calls her woman, my time has yet not yet come. What have you to do with me? If we were to put that into our modern language today, I think he would say something like this, mother, mother, I'm an adult. Let me control my own schedule. I'm not on your schedule anymore. However it sounds, it's certainly not me. And when Jesus is with more religious leaders, not presumably the ones he was with when he was 12 years of age, but religious leaders who are showing a great deal of hypocrisy, he blurts out publicly, out loud, you hypocrites, you whitewashed sepulchers. We may feel like saying that to some people. I hope we don't say that to people, but he says it. He is not meek when he finds that hypocrisy and he's standing in front of it. And then finally... We come around full circle and Jesus is back in the temple again, not as a 12-year-old, but as an adult. And he's watching people bringing their sacrifices to, to God in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's watching those who are buying and selling in the temple on the fringes of the temple and perhaps encroaching into the temple proper, the animal sacrifices that people need. And they do need these. This is a business which in a sense is quite legitimate at the temple if you're going to offer an animal without a spot or blemish. You've traveled a long way. You can't bring your animal with you. You need an animal sacrifice for the 
worship of the temple at that time, and you need special coins for your offering. Somebody needs to do this. But there's cheating. There's lying going on. And I think there's an encroachment into the space of worship as well. And Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. And he brandishes uh, what looks like a whip. It's just a handmade thing that he brandishes around, turns over the tables of all the money changers and those buying and selling in the greater temple area. And in that, he is by no means, he is by no means meek, creating havoc. So Jesus himself, on a number of different occasions in all kinds of situations, is by no means always acquiescent, spineless, browbeaten, bullied, compliant, cowed, dominated, hangdog, henpecked, intimidated, broken, and crushed. This is not who Jesus always is. Though on the other hand, there are at least a few situations in which some of these words, not all of these words, some of these synonyms for meekness do apply to Jesus. So for example, there's one that comes to my mind fairly quickly, and it's towards the end of Jesus' life. It's not only on the cross, but before he dies on the cross, and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is meek. In a sense, he is crushed and broken and compliant before the will of God. And this meekness is a source of life for you and me. Without it, we would be eternally lost. It is a source, actually, of our eternal happiness. And in the end, the source of Jesus' happiness, as through suffering, he fulfills the will of the living God. But it's a struggle for Jesus to be meek at this time. A struggle. So you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he heads off by himself. Some of the closest disciples are nearby, but he heads off by himself, and he turns to his father in prayer. He knows that suffering is ahead of him. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows it's going to be absolutely excruciating. Once again, this is a real human Jesus that we have in front of us, divine, but he knows our humanity in all its breadth and in all its depth and in all its weakness. And he prays to his father and says, I don't want this. You ask me, I don't want it. I don't want this suffering. I don't want this cup, he says. If it's possible, take the cup of suffering away from me. Please, please, please. And then not just as a, a sop or a, an expression of false piety, but in reality, he then says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. It's a struggle, but in prayer, he gets there, Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. And this is the moment, humanly speaking, in which crushed and compliant, Jesus' own will is broken, open wide, and the will of God pours into his life. And he is truly meek. His own will, broken open, and God's will moving in. In fact, it's at this moment that his life becomes aligned with what he knows to be true in Scripture, that God is going to send into history a servant of God who is going to suffer, and a description of whose life we find in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. This is what we read there, and Jesus knows this is who he is supposed to be. 
God is going to send a servant who would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would the punishment be laid that would make us whole, and by his bruises, says Isaiah, we will be healed. He would be oppressed and he would be afflicted, and yet he would not open his mouth, meek, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he would not open his mouth, meek, for us, wounded for our transgressions, his life given over to the will of God for you and me. Not spineless, not cowardly, not hangdog, but actually in that very moment, we see Jesus in all his majesty and all his dignity, all his royal power being wielded on our behalf. And why? Well, so that we might inherit the earth, so that we might find life in all its abundance, not only on the earth, but in eternity in the presence of God in heaven forever, taking upon him suffering that would set us free for life now and always. And this is surely what Jesus has in mind for you and me as well when he speaks about meekness in the Beatitudes. True for him, true for us. We at times think we know what is right and what is the will of God, and at times maybe we do. But then there are other times when our will gets confused and we want to think it's the will of God, but it's not. And for us to move from that place to the place where our will becomes conformed to the will of God, at times it takes us to be broken, to be brought low, to be made meek, until we know that our path is not the right path, but God's path is, and that actually in that path, not our path, in that path, our true happiness is indeed to be found. And the life that we really want, but we thought lay elsewhere, that too is to be found. Last Sunday, I mentioned General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, as we thought about grief and mourning. Happy are those who mourn. Uh, Booth found himself grieving over the poverty in the city of London that he saw there, and this was a grief that led to action. He wasn't stuck in his grief. He grieved, but it was the kind of grief that led to action and to change, and he established this organization which is powerful to this very day, a remarkable organization that we as a congregation often turn to to be the feet on the ground for the ministry that we want to perform in places of great difficulty and great tragedy. This morning I want to share about another person who was involved in the early days of the Salvation Army movement in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. His name is Samuel Logan Brengel, and he was an American, and he was uh, one of God's primary instruments in the growth of the Salvation Army in North America. Great missionary Oswald Saunders uh, writes about Samuel Brengel in a book called Spiritual Leadership like this. He says, Brengel was well-educated. He went to DePaul University and then on to Boston University, went to seminary there, great preacher. Uh, sought by large churches across the United States, and from a human point of view, he had a great career lying ahead of him. But one day he heard uh, William Booth on this side of the ocean uh, speaking in person, and he was convicted by what he heard, and he said, this is what God wants me to do with my life. And so he sailed to, to England and to London, and he offered himself in William Booth's service, but William Booth didn't want him to begin with. 
He was too well-educated. He was too wealthy. He was too polished to be part of the Salvation Army. He would be spending his time with uneducated officers. And William Booth thought there was going to be a disconnect there in the places in London he would have to go to. He would not fit in at all. So he didn't want him to begin, to begin with. So he said, I, I have to test his caliber. He gave him no special privileges, but made him live with the cadets who had signed up to be part of the Salvation Army, who, for the most part, were completely uneducated, filled with zeal for God, but uneducated. Made them live with them. And he said, the first thing you're going to do is to clean their boots, their muddy shoes, their muddy boots. You have to clean them. And everybody else is dispersed, and he is there with his pile of boots in a foreign place. And he says, as he tells his own story, he says that a battle royal raged in his heart and mind at that point. So there's this great aspiration to be a servant of God, and he travels overseas to do it. And he meets William Booth again, and here he is just cleaning off muddy boots. He says, what is this about? This is not what I came for. This is not what I trained for. I did not go to school all these years just for this. And a battle is raging in his soul until he remembers another story of Jesus in which Jesus is meek. And it's such a parallel that he cannot get it out of his mind. It's Jesus not in the Garden of Gethsemane, but in the upper room with his disciples, washing, washing his disciples' feet, not just their shoes, but their feet. And Jesus does this, and he realizes that if Jesus does this, then this is what he needs to do at that moment, and he needs to do it for the glory of God, his spirit broken, his will changed, becoming meek in the service of God, and he would not see it at this moment, but in time he would return to the United States and would become one of the greatest leaders of the Salvation Army on this side of the ocean, if not the greatest leader in a movement which, as I said, is still flourishing powerfully to this day, but built, built on such meekness as this. Great strength, but meekness as well. Indeed, meekness is not a counter to strength. Meekness and strength are not mutually exclusive. Meekness and greatness are not mutually exclusive. There is a movement in the business world in the United States today which has tried to bring these thoughts to expression. Some years ago now, Robert Greenleaf wrote a book called Servant Leadership, and it's about 20 years ago now that Jim Collins, one of the most popular voices in this direction, wrote a book called Good to Great, in which he and his team interviewed leaders of some of the most dominant organizations, corporations in our nation. And in fact, he covered those who over a period of 15 years had done exceedingly well, top corporations in our nation. And in many of those, he consistently found leaders whom he would describe as meek. He writes this, he says, none of these leaders ever wanted to become larger than life heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. In contrast to the very me-centered leaders of many other corporations, we were struck by how uh, the good to great leaders, is what he calls them, didn't talk about themselves. And he says this was not just false modesty. When we interviewed other people to say what they thought about these top executives, they said exactly the same thing. Quiet, humble, modest, understated, gracious, mild-mannered, 
did not believe his own clippings. Well, meek. These are better words, aren't they? Meek. But they got to the top, the very top. Not weak, but meek. In the end, I think the best definition of meekness, or perhaps the simplest, that Jesus surely has in mind comes from the psalm that we read responsively just a few moments ago, Psalm 37. So much of Jesus' teaching is based on the Old Testament Scripture and in particular on the Psalms. So Psalm 37, verse 5, reads like this, and you'll see it in your bulletin. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. God's way is best no matter what it is or where it lies. Do we believe this? Especially when we have our own opinion in mind. And we're not quite sure of it, and we know there might be another one. Do we believe this? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will be, be, act. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. God's timing is best, no matter when it may be. And that often is not the timing that we would like to be on. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. Don't spend your time thinking about them. So often, our focus is not on God. It's on others and our comparison with others. And sometimes getting our own back on others. Meekness says, no, no. Have the strength to keep your gaze on God. Yet a little while, says the psalmist, they will be no more. Looks as if their lives are permanent, solid forever, but just not true. Those whose lives are permanent, solid forever are those who trust in the Lord. And then this verse, verse 11, but the meek, the meek, and this is where Jesus gets it from, shall inherit the land. Happy, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit well, not just the earth, but all eternity and the gift of God, a relationship with God that lasts from right now and forever. That's where our happiness lies. Let's pray. Holy God, do look down upon us as we are tempted and tested to find happiness in all kinds of places, some of which gives us genuine temporary happiness, but Help us to find that happiness which can abide in the depth of our souls and that nothing can take away. So help us to think about strength and meekness in these days. Amen.